Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Blog Talk Radio. Tonight, we'll go back in time to see things pass when 22 men graced the rugged fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard gain, one final score, which would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight, we'll explore the world of gridiron greats. Welcome to Gridiron Greats Football History and its memorabilia on the Gridiron Greats Publishing and Broadcasting Network in conjunction with Swick Enterprises. And we're live from the Wallingford, Connecticut, home of Gridiron Greats Magazine. I'm Bob Swick, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America which focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We cover 150-plus years of football history and memorabilia. And you'll find us on the web at Gridiron Greats Magazine. It is at this time I'd like to introduce my guest, co-host, who's a senior contributing writer to Gridiron Greats Magazine, a football memorabilia historian specializing in the early artifacts of the game. He also has an incredible run of football card sets from the 1894 Mayos through the 1980s. He hails from Virginia, Mr. Jeff Payne. Jeff! Welcome to the show this evening. Good to be here, Bob. Great to be back. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for filling in again. Uh, hopefully, Joe will be back next month. Uh, and uh, for now, I appreciate you helping out. And we're going to lead off tonight by talking about two very, very early segments and card sets and cards of our football collecting, card collecting history. First one was a card that was issued in 1888, and I can only imagine what a young kid at that time did when he got one of those. And fast-forwarding six years later to a set that was very, very exclusive as far as what players from what colleges were in it. I think everybody knows I'm talking about the N62 Beecher, and the 1894 Mayos. And Jeff, I'm going to hand off to you. What do you know about that feature, Kurt? 
Oh, I love that card. I know some collectors don't, uh, but I absolutely love it. You know, it comes out of the, you mentioned, it's a multi-sport set, the 1888 Goodwin Champion set. Features the only football card in the set. Um, They're all lithographed. They're just little works of art. Um, They're just beautiful. They were distributed in packages of both Old Judge and Gypsy Queen cigarettes. Um, And so I can just imagine, you know, being tobacco set, maybe a kid wasn't pulling it out of the pack. Well, maybe he was back then, you know. But um, I I just love it. And you couldn't have picked a better player from that era to kind of kick off, you know, football card sets, in my opinion. You know, I've done a little digging on on Mr. Beecher. And, um, you know, he was the perfect person to to kind of lead things off for American football, in my opinion. You know, he was a star for Yale, you know, quarterback, which back then really meant running back, right? There was no passing. Um, but he still holds today, interestingly enough, I'll call it the unofficial Ivy League record for most touchdowns rushing in a season with 33 and most in a career with 66. Um, word, word. And it's unofficial because, you know, in their, of course, infinite wisdom, the NCA is more than happy to claim that 18, you know, 69 was the first, you know, intercollegiate football game. And you, you and I know it was, it was a game, and they did call it football. Yep, yep. But it sure as heck looked like soccer. But they will not acknowledge, even with an asterisk or anything else, some of the records that were set, I'll say, in the first 50 years of college football. Um, right, and that kind of right. bums me out. You know, I mean, Beecher is still – I just looked it up the other day. He's still – his 66 touchdowns – he did that in 30 games, by the way um, – is still the sixth most in Division One NCAA history, and he's not even acknowledged ever um, in the record books, even with some sort of an asterisk or something. That's just that's just too bad, right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing. And, and again, I I kind of always said when football went to the forward pass, I, mm-hmm. I think then it was starting to be recognized as an actual game of football per se. Number one, but number two. Somebody like a Beecher, and I do agree with you uh, as far as it's amazing that he's actually a, the the first football slash rugby player that could actually be featured on a card set in that in that good one in that good one set. It's truly amazing to me how he got picked. But again, he was a star at the time, and Yale was a very it, Yale was a very prominent. Uh, college for football, you know, the Hartbed in New Haven, Connecticut, Yale, uh, Yale Bowl wasn't even around then. So it, it, was, uh, it was it was an interesting pick, to say the least. And at the same time, it was also very interesting to see his, uh, or that card having almost a love-hate relationship in the hobby, for whatever reason. And, um, you know, I hear the arguments about you know, it's not wasn't really football. Then I hear the arguments. Yes, it was football. So on and so forth. I think we're both on the same same plane, saying that you know we will recognize that as probably the first actual player depicted on a card that represents the game at that time. And uh, I, you know, again, he has some records that were amazing as a player. So I'm glad he, you know, he was he was featured at the time. Uh, as an aside to this. Yeah. 
Um, do you remember, and I, I'm going to pick your mind a little, there was a, a dealer, I'm pretty sure it was on eBay, he had X amount he would be advertising all the time at one time to try to sell. He had like 12 or 14 or 16 oh, yeah. of them. I don't know if you remember that. That was several years ago. And I always said to myself, yeah. what was the, the logic behind doing that is beyond me. I, I just never understood but, it. <laughs> well, I called him, so I know what the logic was. Um, yeah, because I was very curious. And for anybody that didn't see it, and he still pops up once in a while. Uh, you'll see it occasionally, okay. but not as much as you used to. But um, he had or has somewhere between 10 and 20 uh copies of this card now he is kind of i won't call it hoarding them but collecting them and he actually isn't selling them so you know when i contacted him because i was just curious like what is this dude doing you know Uh, first it was a horrible strategy if he was selling it you know what he was doing was you know putting his his beaters out there with a huge price on them to attract people to call so he could ask you if he could buy yours um because he, he just loves the card. Um, so, yeah, but it's always crazy. It does pop up occasionally, and he has a lot of them. Holy cow. Now, there's not that many. Yeah. I've seen estimates that say there's probably 50 maybe that exist, maybe 60, you know, roughly. And even that's pretty incredible for a card from yeah. 1988. Yeah. But, but that means he has, you know, maybe five. 30%, 40% of all of them yep. that maybe exist. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I, 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 I kind of believe there's 50 out in the, out out everywhere, and there could be, you know, the high end could be 60. Who knows? There could be somebody who's sitting on them, too, and you never know. They're sitting on 10 or 20 of them also. I find that hard to believe that that would happen, you know. So, anyways, long story short, yeah. you know, the logic behind it makes no sense of what he's doing, and, and you know, and again, <laughs> Collectors are collectors, and they can be very different than other people. Yep. So uh, it is what it is, and that's it. So I, it I, I just find so it amazing. I, I, it is amazing. And, you know, I mentioned the um, <laughs> cigarette packs that these came in. You know, one quick collecting story on it was, um, you know, you, you helped me a lot with my wrapper my wrapper collection. I was trying to get a right, wrapper right. for every set in my mainstream Right, run all the way from the mm-hmm. Harry Beecher to, you know, 1988. And, you know, thank you to you for deciding to part with your rapper. You had almost every mainstream rapper between, you know, the late 40s, early 50s, all the way through. Right. You know, well, I guess when Tops kind of really ended collecting and you offered to sell me that collection, which was yep. awesome. It got me really, you know, going. But I had to tackle the pre-war ones. And actually, the last one I got, and I just got it last year at the National, was I was walking along, and I hadn't seen anything of interest for most of the day. And I come around, and I look at this booth, and there sitting in the case is a Gypsy Queen cigarette pack from the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, my gosh, that's my that's my wrapper, right, for the Goodwood right. card. It was the last wrapper I needed. And I just asked the dude what it was. I don't even know if I listened to what he told me. I was already getting my wallet out, you know, because <laughs> I'd never <laughs> seen one again. And so I, that was the last, quote, wrapper I picked up for my run. So I now have all the, well, one, at least one version. Some have obviously multiple wrappers in a set, but I have one yeah, for each yeah. of my mainstream. Yeah. 
and which was wow. pretty cool. That's amazing. And then we're yeah. gonna well fast forward now six years from that feature card. We got now a series of cards featuring players from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale, issued by mm-hmm. Mayo Tobacco. And you know what what's up with that set? I love that set. It was one of the first uh, pre-war sets that I actually completed. You know, I think I mentioned last time on the show that, you know, I started kind of in the middle of the the financial crisis when I got back into the hobby, quickly realized that cards had come down quite substantially in value. And so I figured I better start with the oldest stuff first because it was probably going to escalate and get harder to get if I didn't. And so the, the first couple I bought, uh, that were mayos I got off eBay actually and they all had pinholes in them and I actually I contacted the seller I do that a lot just to find out where they get their stuff from and he told a great story about buying an old steamer trunk and opening it up and inside the top flap tacked to the top of the trunk were all these mayos so it's all in football because there's a there's a baseball set that was also produced that look almost exactly like the football set around the same time. Right, right. And and all these all these cards were tacked up, so someone was traveling with these cards and would, you know, would look at them occasionally to, uh, you know, to just enjoy them when they traveled. Yeah, which yeah. I thought, and which that, I thought was know, really that, cool. That, that was that was common as far as um, I know. Several very very. Uh, large stamp collectors, if they traveled extensively, they would bring parts of their stamp collection with them to work on it or look at it, also with coins at the same time. So, was, And postcards were also very prevalent, too. They would take sections of their hobby with them when they traveled. So that was not uncommon. Uh, you know, talk about it today. Hardly anybody does that unless they're, you know, they're a dealer or whatever, and they're going to set up at a show. So it's pretty interesting, to say the least. So with the no, mayos... No. The, the demand, again, I've I've had people say, you know, they love them. I've had people say they're, they're, they're useless to them because they're, you know, long-forgotten college players. There's a chance that you're never going to complete it because of the Dunlop card, so on and mm-hmm. so forth. What's your, what's your feelings on it, Jeff? Well, I, I love it because I like the history of football, and there is so much history in this set. I mean, you look at, I think there's six or seven you know, college Hall of Famers in it. You're not going to get any other card of, of those players, right? Um, including, of course, Frank Hinkey, who, you know, is widely regarded as one of the, and, and you know, obviously the newer modern people will, will scoff at it, but he's still regarded as one of the best college players in history, one of the only four-time All-Americans. And apparently he was an unstoppable force when he played. But he's sure, in that set. Sure. The only card, obviously, of Hinky. You mentioned the anonymous card, which is the John Dunlop. It doesn't have his name on it. Well, they called it anonymous for, shoot, almost 100 years before it was finally he was identified. Um, right. And that card is a lot harder to find than the other cards in the set, um, which, to your point, means it's, it's difficult to complete the set. You've got to find one of those. and. Nobody knows for sure how many there are, but, you know, it's 20-ish, 15-ish, you know, right, is a gap right. as to how many of those exist. And and they go for big bucks, those cards, when they come yep. up. You're not going to get that card cheap, that's for sure. 
But there's other characters still- in there too. There's one of the famous Poe brothers is in that set. You know, Nat Poe. You've got John Greenway. He was a Rough Rider with Teddy Roosevelt. There's just so much history in that set. If you're into football history, it's just a set you got to look into. You know, a couple of pros. Right. You know, um, early pros, Langdon Lee and, and uh, Doggy Trencher both played pro ball in Pittsburgh and Ohio after they graduated. So you've got, you know, pro players, you know, pre-NFL pro players. It's just full of history. It's why I love it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and I always uh, make the comment, since uh, the colleges were local here, basically Princeton, um, 20 minutes from Yale and Harvard, mm-hmm. I'm still waiting to go to a like an estate sale or flea market and see an old cigar box with them filled oh, yeah. up with the early mayos and the estate sale person say, well, give me ten bucks for the box. I gotta get rid of it. Mm. Type of thing. I'm, and then, I'm uh, an there's, unopened there's pack. A couple, I'm an <laughs> unopened again, pack of of mayo tobacco. Mayo's okay. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. And I'm, it's unopened. I doubt there's a card in it. It's probably from after the cards were produced. I, I'm afraid to right, open it to right. find out. <laughs> and yeah. bought it at some point so, on eBay. So it's still full of tobacco. That's amazing. That's truly amazing. But, uh, you know, again, I, it's a tough set to finish, but I do agree with you 110%. The football history in that set is just truly amazing. Uh, you know, if you really analyze all the players, and we, we've done several articles over the years on the Mayo set in Gridiron Greats magazine, and uh, John Spano did a lot of work on, on researching those guys, too. It, it's truly a, 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 an amazing set to, to collect. And uh, I know I, I have, I think, 13 or 14 of them, and they are the only graded cards I have in my collection, as, as people are shocked when they hear that. I have them all SGC graded, but unfortunately, I got tens uh, that look like forties, and then I got a I got a thirty that looks like a ten type of situation. So uh, if I ever complete it before I pass, so be it. If I don't, I, I'm not worried about it either. I got some nice cards I can look at uh, in any event. And quick story: I know I've told this story several times years ago, back in the late '80s. We all waited for our Sports Collector's Digest to come in, in the mail. And um, there was an ad from a dealer in New Jersey, and he had them for sale for the incredible price of $10 each. Wow. And I called him, and uh, he said, mm-hmm. I only got two left. And he said, it'd be $20 or whatever the postage was. So, And he wanted money orders only, so I had to run to the post office, get a money order. And I, I vaguely remember calling the guy, running that afternoon, make it to the post office, get a money order, and mail it to him. And then it took a while for me to get the two cards. And uh, it, just an amazing pickup. But I, I knew he had probably about, he advertised about 10 or 12 of them. And I'm surprised they wow. as fast as they did, because I didn't think anybody knew what they were, but obviously yeah. other people <laughs> did, and, and, and they pounced on it right away. So, uh, but again, it's a it's a nice it's a nice um, it's a nice beginning to our hobby when we look at it, the Beecher card from 1888 and looking at those Mayos from 1894. I still I still enjoy looking at them, viewing them, talking about them. I can, I can never get tired of those cards, to say the least. Yeah, at this time, fun. our special guest is ready, and I'd like to introduce him. He is a native San Franciscan, 
He began collecting Willie Mays and San Francisco Giants memorabilia. Later, he started collecting 49ers memorabilia and networked with advanced 49ers collectors and gridiron great contributor like, contributors like Marty Jacobs. Currently, he collects Cal, his alma mater, memorabilia, and Stanford, his employer's memorabilia. His latest project finds him collecting Joe Louis treasures. To house and share his collection, he built Phase 1 of the Museum. And Phase 2 is under, de- under design as we speak. He's known as Mr. Mays in the Hobby. He has built a national network of collectors, dealers, and conservation resources. And without further ado, I'd like to welcome and thank for being on the show this evening, Mr. Michael Mazenhalder from San Francisco. Mike, welcome to the show. Good evening, Captain. Good evening, Mr. Payne. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Fine, thank you. Thanks for being on. I appreciate it. And I'm going to lead off by asking you. You're welcome. And I'd like to lead off immediately by asking you, how'd you get started collecting San Francisco 49ers memorabilia? Well, you know, being a native San Franciscan, you know, the Niners were the hometown team. And my mentor in the hobby was much older than I was, and he would often spin tales and yarns about somebody called the King. And my first question was, what does Elvis Presley have to do with the 49ers? (laughs) Because I didn't know what 39 was other than it came before 40 or 49ers. (laughs) So he told me stories about Kizar and and somebody named Hugh Edward McElhaney Jr., the king, and stories about the million-dollar backfield. We went to a, 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 a roast for them. And along the way, I met other advanced collectors like Marty Jacobs and uh, Dave Lipson and Ed Cooper, and they were courteous enough to share, you know, their collections with me and and, uh, show me, you know, what a McElhaney jersey gamer looked like or a sideline jacket or his Letterman sweater or, you know, what complete runs – of 49er programs look like home and away all but 10 complete or you know what lot rice in montana and clark jerseys look like up close and in person so by meeting and networking with other you know having a mentor who taught me how to collect and meeting other advanced collectors and, and sharing you know their stories and experiences uh, I, I was able to come across some treasures and, and some artifacts and 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 uh, learn in fact that uh, San Francisco was rock and roll even though we lost the Hall of Fame to Cleveland but uh, the king was Hugh McElhaney not Elvis Presley <laughs> yeah, nice. that's, that's, that's great that's great I, I've known Marty for probably 25 plus years now and we go back before Gridiron Greats when uh, we corresponded he was looking for certain things I didn't have it what he was looking for, but we ended up, um, you know, developing a friendship. He's been invaluable with the magazine, with all his knowledge and all the articles he writes for, for the magazine. Great guy and an incredible collection that he has. That had to have been so cool to, to have mentors like he did to actually show you the stuff and actually see it 
and you know you can feel the jersey, see the jersey, you become become much more aware of what you're collecting by that. That's so that's so great. I, I'd love the analogy it. that I would like to to draw is from a movie, Night at the Museum. You've probably seen it. Oh, okay. I was yeah. Ben yep. Stil- yep. I, I was Ben Stiller, and I was walking through these museums, and the artifacts were coming to life, talking to me. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty chilly. That's- that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, and I mean, having mentors like Marty, who's an icon, obviously, and a 49ers collector icon, must have, must have been incredible for you. Sounds like well, you, you know, Marty's a, a in the NFL Hall of Fame for being a 49er collector. So um, that that that's exciting. That is great. What kind of uh, Cal and Stanford stuff is in your in your collection? I, I know it says that you know Cal is your alma mater, so you're obviously very tied to them. And then it says you work. You, you, I mentioned you work at Stanford. So have you been able to pick up some football items from from those colleges? Oh sure. I uh, specifically for Cal and Stanford, it, it's a, a original art pennants and pins dating back to the early, uh, to the turn of the century. Uh, Letterman sweaters and blankets. Textiles, ephemera, spoons, schedules, advertising, toys, and jewelry. Just a couple things. That's it? That's all you got? That's all. <laughs> That's all I have well, space picked, for. <laughs> well, you picked a couple of iconic programs, obviously, West Coast. I mean, you must go back all the way to their origins then because, uh, you know, Cal and Stanford are two of the first, if not the first, you know, West Coast college football teams that got going, right? Right. That's correct. Back to 1892 when they played their first game in where of all places? Haight-Ashbury, San Francisco. Hmm. Well, wow. And a, a lot of people don't realize that that's where they first played. And, and uh, right. You know, you know, everybody everybody thinks of the hippie movement there rather than than the football uh, history that was made there. It was truly amazing to say the least. I, I think it was gentrification. Uh, the football moved out and the hippies moved in. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I assume you've been That's to quite definitely. a few of those games in that rivalry, I would imagine, being local there. Not not too many. When I was in college, the, that's when the play happened. But mm. I was more focused on, on school. The academics were, were really challenging for me at Cal. Plus, I worked and I commuted. So it, it really made difficult managing you know, a work, a commute, and an academic schedule and, and try to get to the games. So I bet, I, I bet there's 200,000 people that claim they were at that game, though, right? Oh, there? sure, sure. <laughs> it's like asking somebody if they voted for X and everybody said they didn't. <laughs> Those are the right. same people. Yeah, we know them very well. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. It's an iconic <laughs> game. Right. Now, in your collection, I mean, you got you got so many different things there. It's truly amazing, and I, I can, you know, again, seeing some of the stuff you've posted on it, some amazing pieces. Can you, you narrow down and and tell our audience and describe what what are the top, you know, let's call six favorite sure. items, football items you have in your collection? Um, a 1920s um, uh, carved Stanford 14-inch. Uh, player music box wind up hmm. uh, 19, 1910 Cal pennant circa 1910 
Cal Pennant. Also have the Companion Stanford, um, 1910 Cal Pennant. Uh, 1959 Cal Rose Bowl autograph team football with uh, Vikings great quarterback Joe Cap on it. We lost that year. Uh, 1903, 1903 Sunset Magazine poster. It features a coach, a Stanford coach, and two players. That coach was James Lanigan, coach in 1903. Uh, I had that restored with uh, Art of Restoration in Chicago. 1905 Congdon Chrome Stanford football player poster, advertising for a Congdon Chrome, which is a which was a 110 year old stationery store. Uh, in Palo Alto, and then finally a, a complete set of uh, 1950s 49ers glasses uh, that includes amongst uh, the, the players alley-oop and uh, Hugh McElhaney. I would say though, those are six right there. Wow. All right. Let's, <clears throat> so let's, let's, that's awesome. Did you, um, do you have any, any of those associated with runs do you collect like a run of pennants or run of pins or no um, the pennants the pennants the earliest stanford pennants have ljsu uh transpose on top of the lj the s and the u but they're not runs so to speak i mean they're different you know um different styles in terms of font in terms of size um of course you know in terms of what was represented you know there was the Early mascot was the Stanford Indian, which went out in '72, you know, for political reasons. And then, in terms of the pins, it's you know whatever I can find, whatever. Right. You know, there's um, there's some whitehead and hogs that are uh, pretty tough to mm-hmm. find. If you can find them, but um, I did see one or two over over the time and uh, wasn't able to capture them, but I know they're there. Yeah, I have a whitehead hog of Thorpe. Um, is, is really hard to find. I imagine those are tough. They're they're very tough. The, the, but the great thing about them is, is you can turn over the back and they tell you who they are. That's exactly. the fun part. Yeah, yeah. So you can date mm-hmm. them that way. You know, there's no dispute. Like, well, how do I know it's really a hundred years old? Well, mm-hmm. whitehead and hog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's great. How how long did they issue those? Do you have any idea? Mike? No, I I don't. Okay, that would be an interesting one to know. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm wondering because I, I I tried doing a little research on them, before, um, actually quite a while ago. I went back into my notes for whatever reason. Somebody must have asked me the question on it, and, and I really couldn't find much of anything. My guesstimate, and I, I could be way off, it was probably done for like fifteen or six, probably fifteen to twenty years. I don't know if that sounds logical or not, because uh, the, the greatest popularity of those were roughly in that time frame. I could be completely mm-hmm. wrong. I have no idea. But um, you know, I'm just curious if if you actually actually knew how many you know no. what years they were. Okay. Of course, if Paul yeah. if Paul were alive, we could call and ask him. Paul Muchinski. Right. 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 And uh, uh, he, he was sorry, definitely. Who, who is Paul? Who is Paul? Pardon, pardon me. Who is Paul? Yeah, Paul Muchinski, he's written a number of pinback books. He wrote ah, one okay. for baseball. Okay. He's written yeah. one for boxing. Yeah. He's been a okay. consultant, and his collection was was uh, um, consigned or recently sold at Hakes Americana. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, he was 
he he was so knowledgeable about pins uh, and and pin backs. It was just it was just amazing. And uh, I correspond. I I vaguely remember corresponding with him years ago about something, um, some sort of obscure college pin. And I don't remember. And I and I and I um, I didn't prepare for it for this show. But I'll look at my files to see if I still have any of his course. If I did get correspondence from him or not. But he that would be interesting, very much. Yeah, so I don't know. Um, but, you know, his his name popped in my mind first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Now, backing up a bit with the, with your top six there, we talked a little bit about the pins and the pennants. Talk a little bit more about the, the first item that you mentioned, that musical. Um, uh, uh, the the, the carving? Um, yeah. Well, yeah. what happened was there was a an estate sale in San Francisco, of a of a Stanford alum, and I called a buddy and asked if he was going, and he didn't respond. Well, he ended up going day one, and I came day two, and I you know bought a number of items, uh, Stanford and Giants items and whatnot. He uh, subsequently back went back three times, three or four more times to the estate sale, and on his last trip, he was downstairs in the basement, and he looked over and he saw this 14-inch carved Stanford football player and on the back there was a little um, box, square box and and he was trying to figure out what it was and there was a, another hole in the back. Well, lo and behold, he realized that it was a music box and it was made in Germany. It stamped, you know, Germany on it and mm-hmm. it was in this alum's collection and it's probably from the 20s or 30s, and it's a wind-up, and uh, I've yet to get a key to wind it. I'm, I'm a little um, nervous about doing that, but it is a music box because that little um, square box is a speaker, and that little hole is where you would put a key in and wind it. So it's a wind-up music box made in Stanford that, that's 14 inches high, that's carved, and it has the, the S embellished on the front of, of the jersey. It's extremely wow. ornate and detailed. I, I'm wow. very curious that if the song that it plays could be possibly a Stanford fight song or cheer song or something like that. I Yeah, that remains that to be. to be. I, yeah. I know an expert who can find out, but like I say, I'm kind of – and I know who has a key to fix it. It's just, you know – getting that to, but but if i find out or when i find out i'll let you know yeah i mean that, that, that certainly piqued my curiosity i'm 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 fascinated to find out what what the actual song i mean i could, could be completely off melody or song from the the 20s or that time frame right and they just they just fit the uh the musical pieces and i know i saw one other time uh a similar type of piece i don't have it i don't have any picture of it, but I was at a show one time locally, and somebody got a similar uh, music box piece for Yale, and it played the uh, Bulldog song. As wow. A fight song. And, right. Um, I, 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 don't have, I, I don't have a lot of other memories of it. And this, this was quite a while ago, probably 25 years ago, and I just thought it was the neatest thing. I don't know what he was asking for or whatever, but I, I, I didn't buy it. I, did, I, I thought it was very, uh, very interesting. Again, I don't know how many of those are still in existence, and you know, or are they just collected by music box collectors? You know, 
So it's yeah, I, I don't know, but but I will tell you if I told you what I paid for it, you wouldn't believe me. You'd probably indict me. <laughs> I, I paid two hundred dollars well, for it. You got a good deal on it, one way or the other. Two hundred dollars. Yeah, that's wow. amazing. Unbe- yeah. Unbelievable. Yes, unbelievable. Best Stanford piece in my collection. Wow. Wow. So it's interesting yeah, you say that, Mike, because I was kind of wondering, you know, just thinking about, you know, you often hear about the fact that, you know, on the East Coast there's so much football-related, you know, memorabilia and whatnot. And I'm kind of curious, you know, when how often when, when you go to and shows or sales or things, do you zero in on stuff? And nobody else there even knows what it is, right, because of your, your focus in this area. I mean, how, well, how prevalent is, are the collectors of the kinds of things that you're looking for? And uh, obviously you're right there where all this stuff is. So I would, I would think you'd find some pretty good stuff like this music box you mentioned. Well, I will tell you the truth. Unlike the East Coast colleges, we don't have 100 or 200 years on our pedigree. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, you know, there's more out there East Coast wise mm-hmm. than West Coast. When it comes to the West Coast, it's a small handful of collectors who look and collect at the advanced level. So, mm-hmm. where do I find things or where can I tell you these things are? Super simple answer. They're in private collections. They're not in the estate sales, the flea markets, you know, all the places that, you know, where it used to be, because that's where it used to be. They've been gobbled up. Um, When I I started collecting Sanford Cal maybe the last two or three years, and there are collectors out there who have twice, three times, ten times what I have. If you think of Mm -hmm. what I have is impressive, I will tell you, uh, the top three cow collectors, I can't even touch in terms of what they have. Uh, the, you know, wow. the top Stanford collectors, I can't because they've been collecting 10 to 20 years, 30 years longer than I have. And they were smart because they had no competition. They knew what they were buying. They were those people going to the state sales, going to the flea markets, and, and buying it in, and buying it in bulk at at reasonable prices. There weren't price guides, you know, it's whatever. So, you know, everything was negotiable. You know, things were fair. You know, there weren't conditions. There wasn't PSA. You know, there weren't the auction houses. It was the wild, wild West. Go West, young man. So, you know, when I stepped up to the table and try to play poker, you know, I was folding on the first hands trying to compete against them. So I had to work, 10 times harder finding things and building the relationships, you know, that they had built and the collectors that they had built and owned for 20, 30 years. And it's in short supply. I mean, you can just look at the auction houses, you know, how much West Coast memorabilia. Um, Leland's is going to be coming up in an auction. I believe it's in April with one of the most fantastic uh, Stanford pieces I've seen. It's, it's a scrapbook. Mm. And there's a great program in there of, early Stanford versus uh, University of Chicago. It's probably only one of one or one of two. And, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, an artifact like that, or, you know, you have the, uh, you know, the Carlton Hendricks, um, you know, find, you know, Carlton went to auction and probably bought 
you know, one of the most well-known Stanford, you know, um, lots in the whole history of the hobby, you know, unused big game tickets, multiples, 1894, 1896, 1898, and then the 1893 oversized team photo with Hoover in it. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that's historic, but it's also rare. And, and that, that auction, that find, that buy is historic. I don't know if that can ever be touched. If you've ever seen big game tickets, you know, unused from 1894, 96, and 98, it'll just blow you away. You put them in your hand, you're like, who would not have gone to the game? You know, of course, we know all the people that said they went, right? (laughs) (laughs) No names. I don't want to get sued. (laughs) Okay. Hey, Mike, any favorite collecting stories for you? It sounds like, I mean, obviously you're yeah, out working it. I, will, trying to find I, I have a question to answer this question. Mind. I have a question for you and for the captain. My question is, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when I say Craigslist and looking for collectibles? Scam. <laughs> okay. Well, let me tell you, that was my response until dot, 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 dot. So – once upon a time, I think it was about three years ago, I looked in Craigslist just because, you know, desperate trying to find a new medium to find items, right? Look outside your pond, right? Mm-hmm. So this seller advertised that he was selling an entire Stanford collection, and he had pictures and showcases, and I thought it was a joke. So my friend and I hustled down to the peninsula in Northern California. We went down there, and it was true. It was a Stanford collection dating back to the 1900s that was for sale. So I went through it, and I bought it, and I made the cardinal sin of purchase. I made the biggest mistake, one of the biggest mistakes in collecting. I didn't ask the question, is this all that you have? So – Went down with a buddy. He helped load up my car with this collection. And then after we went to the ATM and, you know, I was knocked out like I just got hit by, you know, Mike Tyson. (laughs) And I was literally, it was a one, two, three, you know, first round knockout. Um, For me, my wallet, my sense, my uh, everything. (laughs) He says to me, the seller, oh, do you like penance? And I'm like, yeah. And then he brings out over 100 Stanford pennants. And then he brings out three or four or five more boxes of stuff. And I just, I I was, you know, that's a huge mistake. You know, when you're looking at a clay, you should always ask, is this all that you have before? But I was so mesmerized, hypnotized, you know, getting knocked out in the first round. So luckily I went back a month later and I was able to pick up the balance. Nobody had picked it. Nobody had even called him about the collection. Wow. Just this wow. is a story that wow. I can't even I, – I still can't believe it happened. I just can't. And it was, uh, it was uh, you know, it was a lesson learned. And then here's the best part. After I picked that, he comes out with two other items. One, luckily, which I had, which is, a, you know, the 12-inch oversized uh, carving of a Stanford Indian football player. I'll post those on, you know. But uh, and then there's mm-hmm. a small one. But he had that, and then he had some Stanford wooden pin uh, that I didn't have. But so the the biggest carnal sin is is when you go to buy something, always ask, "Is this all you have?" 
don't get knocked out like I did. Because who knows, within the month when I returned, it could have all been gone. Everything I right. left behind, including the pennant. Right. So uh, well, that's you know, probably the, the best story. The, the, the guy probably was just so happy selling it, and so he figured, well, you know, you're going to come back at some point, and maybe he wasn't he wasn't overly concerned about pushing it to get rid of it. So he figured you would come back in, in due time, and you know, right. He was, he, he was he was nice to you the, the whole that, that's something yes. he you, was hedging his bet you either buy it right then and there or you're done that's it. I've learned that quite well right. over the years so, right uh, well wow. if they were some 1884 males you know you wouldn't have second chance at those right 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 exactly <laughs> wow what a story all right, well, along those same lines, since you, you picked up all that stuff from the collection, tell our listeners about your museum. Okay, so I've been collecting 40, 50 years and had everything put away and squirreled away in, in dresser drawers, um, storage areas, um, closets, you know, anywhere where there was a space, a cupboard, I'll take it. Icebox, boom. No, I'm just kidding. So I decided... You know, the best thing I could do with my collection is to share it. So what I did was I took an area of my house and I cleaned it out and I started with eight showcases and then I realized that I needed some support. I mean, this hobby became a project. So what happened was eight showcases, I I had to find an electrician to put up the the, uh, lighting, the track lighting. Mm -hmm. Then I had Mm -hmm. to get a design consultant to help me lay everything out. Then I had to find a framer. And then, you know, after that was all done, I had to decide what to put in and what showcases. So what I did was the, the museum is built on five themes. It's Stanford, Cal, 49ers, Giants, and Joe Lewis. And it goes back to the turn of the century through, like, the 1960s. And it's anything and everything with some exceptions, of which I don't collect. I don't collect tickets. I don't collect programs. I don't collect autographs. um, I don't collect game-used items. And I don't collect cards. So anything and everything else of what I don't collect, I collect for those five themes. And everything is organized and situated from one perspective, and that's art. It's artistically and aesthetically uh, pleasing to look at. So it's walking into a gallery or walking into a museum, and there's gender balance on how I set it up. Because one dealer told me, if you go to sell something and the gentleman is, is, wants to buy it, but a significant other um, may be hedging the bet, Find something can, that can appeal to both of them, and you're in a better uh, situation of selling it or them liking it. So I've set it up artistically so people going in are comfortable at what they're looking at from art, an artistic uh, perspective versus looking at it from you know, a different perspective. It's something that appeals to everybody, and that's how I've set it up when, it, when I designed the layout and worked and work with the, the, the design consultant that I, that I hired. So how much? Art, wow. Sports. When I come to visit, how much? 
Unless you're like no, it's free. The museum. It, but it's by it's by invite only. So <laughs> I will show ah, it to I you um, <laughs> because I appreciate the fact that you're passionate about what you collect. And to me, you know, uh, I think the biggest celebrity that I had come and visit my collection was a lady named Bianca. Bianca is a Cal alumna who's gone and attended uh, 56 big games, 93 years old. Wow. And when she came and saw the collection, and I gave her a Cal Letterman jacket from the 60s that, oh, by the way, fit her, it made my day. Wow. (laughs) And have her tell me about what it was like to go to uh, 56 big games. Just meant the world to me, and her at 93 still celebrating that each and every year. That was the highlight of somebody coming to visit. Just you just can't you can't compare. And that's what's made it fun. It's sharing the collection. I mean, I've seen some amazing collections, but to me, you know, I don't want to just die off and not, you know, appreciate what I have or share it with the with the people, you know, that that enjoy collecting. Well, I'd ask you about the well, name, but it's pretty obvious how you came up with it. Well, the last uh, name, my last Eum. name is Mason Halder. It's Mason. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, Mason Halder plus Eum, Mazeum. Yeah, yep, makes perfect sense. Probably didn't take long for you to come up with that. That's a perfect name. No, that's probably the one time I had a stroke of genius. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's wow, so cool that you're amazing. sharing it with, with people. That's just awesome, you know. I mean, I know so so many collectors for whatever reason, have their stuff, you know, maybe it's, you know, obviously there's security issues and, and such with some things, right, and whatnot, but there's just people that don't, for whatever reason, they don't want to show it to people. They just don't, it's just not their thing, and it's just a missed opportunity, in my opinion. Like you said, I mean, sharing this this history and information is, is just, um, it's gratifying, right? It, it Sharing knowledge is a good thing. So I'm I'm really glad you're doing that. That's totally awesome. Well, I I will tell you in defense of people who who don't share or don't want to share. I, I'm I'm going to give you an example of what I can understand. There are items that people have in their personal collections that they don't want their fellow collectors to know for whatever reason. Because or they may have extras, but. It's not something they're willing, able to trade because, because the person wants it. So what I'm trying to say is when I'm, when I'm dealing personally with these super advanced collectors, I will tell you what's not on the table, and that's money. None of them want mm-hmm. money. None of them want right, cash. Right. So their first question is, okay, Mike, you want this or you want that. What do you have? But it's never money, never, ever, mm-hmm. ever money. And so they may have things that they don't want people to know because people think, oh, well, you have 10 of them, you know, why don't you just trade something that, you know, it needs. So I've just worked out one transaction where there were two parties and they both really, really wanted something and they both know each other, but they don't know that the deal went down because I was the person in the middle because they didn't want that person because it had to be the right item. So mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. the conduit, and I, I got something out of it because they each got something they wanted. And it's all confidential, and, and they'll never know 
what the inner workings are. Right. And, you know, the only way you can come to the table is if people trust you. If they don't trust you, you don't even get that far. I mean, they'll, they'll, you know, I've had people I'll say, hey, I really like that, and they'll say, okay, um, find something for me. So they're not saying, oh, yeah, I'll sell it to you. It's like you have to find the right – sometimes the trade works, sometimes it doesn't. And it's very complex. But they don't want money. Money is no good in, in, to the advanced. What do you got? Right. Do you have that gypsy queen wrapper I need? If you uh-huh. want this, get me that gypsy queen wrapper, okay? Then we'll talk. Oh, Jeff got the Jeff, gypsy queen wrapper? Yeah, but he traded. Jeff completed his set. Jeff's got a complete wrapper collection. And that's that's the challenge now. So there isn't a challenge now seeing things I want. I just don't have enough um, uh, toys in the chest to trade. And that's my biggest um, challenge is finding, mm-hmm. you know, there's something now I know I really, really want, but I haven't found that item, and I really want it. Mm-hmm. So, wow. Sounds like you got to keep that's collecting. Keep, keep getting stuff, right? So you've got, you've got right. stuff to trade when it comes up. Yeah. Or you have to buy stuff oh. that you're not going to keep because yeah, later you're, you're going to use trade. it for a trade. You're going to trade it. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's logical. Yeah, yeah and I can, logical. I can see that. I mean, I know some collectors who have doubles of, of some, you know, pretty rare, hard-to-find things. And, you know, they won't sell them for any, any amount of money because, you know, to them, they're trade bait to get yep. the things they're missing. There. Exactly. And, they feel and like the only way they're going to get with is what the they're missing is having it. trade bait. So they they won't sell it for anything because they feel no. like it's worth more for the trade than it is for the the dollars. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The dollars the the dollar is falling. The dollar will always fall. The memorabilia, if it's rare enough and hard enough, there will always be a demand for it. Mm. It's just simple simple supply and demand. I'm not an econ major, but that's what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> You're correct. I have Makes two sense. degrees on it. So. <laughs> All right. So any advice? Um, any advice, Mike? You okay. give to the beginning collector? Sure. Anything, it's uh, the five. It's sure. the five C's. Okay. Each one of these starts with C. All right. Uh, collect what you love and have fun. That's number one. Uh, number two is choose condition and don't settle. The only exception would be if something is so rare, you pick up one of one of them and then upgrade it le- later. But condition rules. There's just no no negotiation. Conditions everything. Uh, number three C is carve out a budget. Um, number four would be. Cultivate a network. Build a network nationally um, by, by talking to collectors, dealers, um, reading all the, all the websites, reading all the, the sales sites, you know, looking at trends in auctions. Um, cultivate a national and international network because like football, blocking and tackling will win you a Super Bowl. It's other collectors and dealers who, who are your eyes and ears throughout the nation, 
throughout the inter- internationally and throughout the world. They'll help find things for you, get things for you, trade things, but you have to build a network. And by cultivating a network, um, you got to gain credibility. And then the last thing would be cons- conserve, see, for conserve and preserve. Um, you want to c- keep what you have in great condition. You want to invest in mylar for ephemera. Um, if you're going to have something framed, you know, you want to invest in having something that's got UV or, or museum glass. Uh, I can't tell you how many great collections I've seen who who are at risk of disintegrating because people are not conserving and preserving what they have. If you work ten times as hard to get it, then you should work ten times as hard to preserve it and keep it. Those are the five C's. Collect what you love and um, choose condition, carve out a budget, cultivate a network, and conserve and preserve the five C's. Great advice. Great, great advice. Uh, that's, that's, that's refreshing to hear, to say the least. Mike, we're almost out of time. I want to thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule and calling in today. Uh, what what an amazing collection you have. And I've been telling Martin well, for Marty, Marty for years, i got to get out there for a game with him one day. So well, I'll tell happens, you, so. Here's, here's what I will commit to you, Captain. If you come <laughs> out here, okay. I will bring you into the collections that people have and, sh- and show you them. Oh, I will boy. set that up wow. for you. It will be a whirlwind tour for you. Um, and I will show it to you, and it will be worth the time. And I'll tell you, I'll throw in a free meal too. And the same is true for you too, Jeff. Can't beat that. Can't beat right? that. I'm there. I'll tell you a last quick story. Um, there was a, a, a dealer who had an item I wanted, and he didn't want to sell it to me because he went to the rival high school. It, no, it wasn't Tom Brady because Tom Brady went to the rival my rival high school. But anyway, it was another collector. And so he said, well, I don't want to sell this to you because you went to this high school, and I went to that high school. And what I said was, okay, that's fair, but I'll, I'll take you to Joe's to eat. He said, done deal. Let's do the deal. So <laughs> it's, it's amazing, uh, you know, if you want to get oh, to thanks. a collector's uh, um, uh, or, or, or a dealer's arsenal, um, attack the stomach. That's true. That's true. We have a uh, – <laughs> My wife's niece is out there now, and she's been bugging us to get out there because she wants to take us to uh, Napa Valley over there. Oh, you'd and, love uh, it. She knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she knows. You know, we're big. We're big wine uh, lovers, also. So I could do a two for one thing. So I have to talk to Brenda about this one. When things clear up. I, well, I when things cl- clear and the dust settles, we're uh, we're looking forward to seeing you because if there's one thing we know about in the in the Bay Area, it's hospitality. And great wine. Yep, yep. I agree with that. I agree with that. Mike, thank you. And you like Italy, so there's plenty of it out here. I do. (laughs) I appreciate it. La Dolce Vita. Yeah, definitely, definitely. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Have the time of my life, and I thank you for the invite and your hospitality. You're welcome. Thanks for being on, Mike. Jeff, Thank you, we're gentlemen. out of time. Real quick, two-minute warning and wrap-up. I'm going to hand off quick. What'd you pick up on tonight's show? In ten seconds or less. 
<laughs> Put aside all the awesome stuff Mike has. Uh, he is a wealth of information and knowledge about the hobby. We got negotiating advice. We got advice for collectors. We heard about advanced collectors and how they think. I mean, you could spend a whole show on that stuff alone. So exactly, um, it was awesome, and the museum sounds incredible. So I can't wait to see it someday. I I double that, and with a couple seconds left, thanks for listening. Check out our website, gridirongreatsmagazine.com. We'll be back hopefully thanks, next Bob. week with another show. Take care. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.